The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Iran pulls out of the 2015 nuclear accord and vows to expel the United States from the region after thousands of Iranians take to the streets to mourn the death of military commander Qasem Soleimani. Asian stocks fall. Oil spikes amid the heightened tensions as President Trump threatens to hit 52 Iranian targets and sanction Iraq like they've never seen before. Meanwhile, Japan vows to tighten its immigration rules after the country's prosecutors break their silence on Carlos Ghosn's escape, calling it illegal and unjustifiable. And thousands of Hong Kong protesters march near the Chinese mainland border after Beijing replaces its top representative in the territory, putting a party faithful into the job. In the meantime, 1917 and Fleabag take the big awards at the Golden Globes, while HBO and Disney win on the studio front, despite Frozen 2 losing to Missing Link in the animated category. So a very warm welcome this Monday morning to the programme. Let's start off with our headline story here. Iran has pulled back from the nuclear deal that it signed with Western powers in 2015. Tehran says it will not abide by the commitment set out in the accord and not comply with limitations on uranium enrichment. While the update from the government was expected, it comes amid escalating tensions following the US killing of Major General Qasem Soleimani. Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif has called the pullback reversible depending on reciprocal obligations. Hundreds of thousands took to the streets of Iran over the weekend to mourn the death of Soleimani. The military commander's coffin was paraded through Baghdad and Najaf in Iraq before his body returned to Iran. Mourners packed the streets of Avaz to pay tribute, some chanting, death to America. A funeral for the revered military figure will be held in his hometown on Tuesday. Uh, just, a, just a nod to history here um, for our viewers. Uh, the number of American diplomats and citizens who had held hostage for 444 days uh, from the 4th of November 1979 to January, 1920, uh, January the 20th, 1981 was 52. And, and just because that's a very important number, it's a symbolic number, because now President Trump has threatened the US will hit 52 Iranian targets, warning Tehran against retaliating uh, the death of Qasem Soleimani. Releasing a series of tweets, the US president said he would take aim at cultural sites, uh, adding they would be hit very fast and very hard if Iran struck any Americans or US assets. Hadley is live for us in Abu Dhabi. And Hadley, you were talking through a lot of scenarios and what things could potentially happen next uh, with our viewers uh, from the west coast of the US uh, late last week. 
In the meantime, we've had a weekend of, of threats and counter threats uh, and this intriguing Iraqi parliament debate as well uh, and resolution as well, which, of course, is non-binding on the leadership of the country. But in terms of what would have been game played by the US and what has transpired so far, has it gone, do you think, according to plan? Good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. Well, essentially, um so much jockeying position, as you say right now, whether they be sitting in Iraq, uh, whether you're in Iran or even when, within the United States. I mean, Nancy Pelosi uh, coming out to declare that they would be attempt at least to do a vote in terms of uh, a resolution on war powers where the president wouldn't necessarily be able to act just as he sees fits in Iran, uh, were he to try and do so and be held back potentially by the power of Congress. So a lot of jockeying for position in the region at the moment. Lots of questions over whether or not uh, the death of Qasem Soleimani uh, really throws the balance of power out of whack when it comes to that massive web, that network, international network that he was really at the center of uh, with regards to state and non-state actors, various proxies throughout the region, whether or not Iran's going to be able to continue to exert the same amount of authority when it comes comes to uh, leaders of those groups, like, for example, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah. We're going to hear from him around 1.30 local time uh, tomorrow when I'm in Lebanon reporting to you live on that. I um, just want to give you a cu couple of comments that we heard um, over the last couple of hours. Speaking on state television in Iran, the daughter of Qasem Soleimani, essentially speaking uh, at her father's funeral ceremony, saying that, quote, his martyrdom will bring a dark day to the United States and to Israel. And also that, quote, crazy Trump should not let her father's death or should not believe that her father's death means that, quote, everything is over. So again and again, I've said it, uh, you know, we're not talking about if Iran will respond. We're talking about when they're going to do it, how they're going to do it, if there's going to be a coordinated series of attacks, if this will go through proxies, if this will happen directly in Iraq. Already so much turbulence there in that country. We saw the prime minister, of course, attending uh, Qasem Soleimani's funeral. We've heard from the president of that country as well, paying tribute to him. You've got to remember that this is a man, in spite of having American blood on his hands, uh, who he worked very pragmatically um, in the past with the Americans, for example, with Ryan Crocker, when it was deemed necessary to you know, really pull together there in an attempt uh, to take out the Islamic State, for example. He's very much credited with being the first really on the ground, uh, not the Americans, the Iranians, when it came uh, to helping out Iraq during the early and dark days uh, with their fight with the Islamic State. But I also want to take a step back and uh, let you listen into some of the comments that we heard from the United States Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, over the weekend. We would have been culpably negligent had we not taken this action. The American people would have said that we weren't doing the right thing to protect and defend American lives. President Trump has been crystal clear. The president made uh, the right decision. We will reduce risk. I think General Milley said, is there still risk of attack? Of course there is. There's tremendous risk. Right. And we're doing everything we can to make sure that we take that down and protect American lives. That's the mission set. Frankly, there is something to be said for uh, the secretary's comments there, because remember, all of the uh, various attacks that we've seen taking place in this region, unprecedented level of tension uh, in the region over the last several months. It's unlike anything that I've seen living out here and working out here over the last 10 years in terms of what's happened in the Persian Gulf this past year in 2019. One wonders, of course, whether or not this act, while potentially justifiable on the part of the United States, uh, what the implications that they will that it will have long term, because we are not just talking about uh, the safety and security of the Persian Gulf and whether or not 
uh, the U.S. Fifth Fleet is really going to be able to keep a lid on anything that might occur there. We're also talking about what this means to the broader region, because it was never really about, was it, a direct confrontation between Iran and the United States. It was always about the potential fallout from an action such as this one and what that could mean for the rest of the Middle East, because uh, the United States not necessarily going to feel the brunt of any actions from Iran, are they? It's really the Gulf Arab countries and the broader region. Guys? Hadley, talk us through some of the short-term maneuvering now because this move by the Iraqi parliament to effectively uh, call on U.S. and other foreign troops to leave their country, it's a non-binding resolution. You've got about 5,000 U.S. troops uh, in Iraq, mainly on an advisory role. What happens from here? Do you see any move to de-escalate that where there is a position where the Americans can stay on the ground? Because we've already heard that there are concerns about security in Iraq with ISIS and other forces still very active in the region. So what happens from here, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen instability in Iraq since prior to 2003, right? It's around about the time that the Americans decided to invade that country. This is the issue. Um, we don't have, as of yet, um, a clear idea of how much the Americans will be able to, to bring sway to this situation. As you say, it's a non-binding resolution in terms of pushing the American troops out. There is some expectation that, of course, the U.S. ambassador could get the formal word from uh, the leadership in Iraq, a caretaker government, you have to remember, uh, as to what happens next with regards to U.S. troops. The vacuum that could be left there, this is something that the Iranians have wanted since day one, since all of the work that Qasem Soleimani did to put Americans at risk and to kill Americans between 2003 and 2011 with that surge in Iraq. Uh, this is what they wanted all along, to get the Americans out of Iraq, remember. But what that means for the broader region, will we see another rise of an Islamic state-like group or al-Qaeda resurgence? That's the bigger question, isn't it? And certainly that's going to be on the minds of these uh, Iraqi leaders because, you know, I've spoken uh, to Iraqi leadership as well as businessmen over the years. And again and again, they always tell me this American policy in the region, and particularly the Trump administration's policy with regards to maximum pressure, really leaves us between Iraq and a hard place, literally, because the Iranians are in this country. They're in this country to stay to a large extent. At the same time, we're trying to create some balance here. But to act as if we could uh, ignore them completely is just, frankly, not realistic. Guys? Hadley, excellent coverage. Thank you very much indeed for that. And, of course, we'll come back to you throughout the rest of Scorebox and beyond. So, look, let's just take a step back. This is the first full week of trading for all of you in 2020. And I do wish you all a happy new year. Of course, our headline stories uh, are, are pretty bleak and, and concerning for all of you out there, whether you're investors or just humanitarians as well. Uh, but the fact of the matter is you are now thinking of trading ideas and what to do after what has been let's face it, an historic, excuse me, a historic uh, rally in 2019. We'll come to a little bit more of that in a few moments time because you've got to worry about everything you were worried about last year, plus something that probably wasn't top of your radar, which is US-Iran, US and its allies, Iranian tensions in the region and beyond. And of course, what it does for WTI, what it does for Brent crude as well. We've seen a very measured, I would suggest, move to the upside, a move which hasn't been exacerbated by a thin trade one way or other. I would suggest to you the 5.3% rally we've seen over the course of the week has been pretty measured. We haven't seen an immediate 10 bucks rally in oil, a 20 bucks rally in oil and some exacerbated trading. I think it's been very measured, the reaction from the market, despite the fact that, of course, last week you would 
wouldn't have seen the same kind of liquidity that you will see in the coming weeks as people get back to their desks as well. But we are trading at highs we haven't seen on these products since the early part of last year, around about April 2019. Let's move on to some perceived safe havens. And again, gold continues to rally. I'll just take you up to this. Look at this. Even today, $24 per troy ounce higher on spot gold. Uh, I remember this panel, the desk, Jeff, Karen and myself talking extensively about why gold wasn't rallying above $1,300 at one point last year. This is a very strong momentum trade that we've seen uh, over the last nine months or so. So very strong performance there. We're trading at multi-year highs there. Uh, The dollar versus the Japanese yen. Again, a very steady pair. Let's be honest about it. A lot of you Forex traders are bemoaning central bank action, which you believe has stripped volatility out of some of your key pairs and stripped opportunity out of those key pairs as well. I would suggest you this is one of them. Do you remember the days when we rallied on this pair from 81 to 120? I do. Wasn't so long ago. Here's the Swissy versus the US dollar. The US dollar just giving back a tiny bit of ground versus the Swissy moving up 0.13 of 1% for the latter of those pair. And the Treasury 10-year paper trading at 177. So let's take a look at Wall Street. Let's take a look at the markets and just remind ourselves where some of these indices are, including the Asian indices. We'll come to Wall Street in a few moments' time. The Hang Seng down 7 tenths of 1%. The Nikkei down 2%. Of course, very concerned on that trade-heavy economy about the ramifications of the oil price as well, because let's face it, despite the fact that we are in this energy transition, hydrocarbons play a huge part of the import bill uh, for the Japanese economy. 23,182 is where the Nikkei 225 is trading. The Shenzhen Composite up eight tenths of 1%. Right now, the US markets. And I do want to make the point that, yes, we are down in Friday's session, 0.7 of 1%. But actually, the US markets last week were flat. Well, flat. In fact, up until Thursday, my first day back at work of the new year, in fact, everyone's, I think, first day back, if they were, of course, not working the first, was the fact of the matter was we were up. We were up on the week as well on the trading. We were at record levels. And the S&P is still around about 38% higher than it was Christmas Eve last year. So just bear that in mind. We are decimals away from record highs on these indices, despite the elevated concerns. And this is the key point I want to make to you. You're still worried about what the Fed does in 2020. You're still concerned about the Eurozone economy and Brexit. You're still keeping an eye on the signing eventually of this phase one trade deal. But now you've got geopolitical and energy price risk added into that as well. You didn't need that for your portfolio. But isn't it interesting, looking at the level of markets, despite all of those concerns, it does seem rather binary, the decision that people have taken. And I should say at this point, welcome to Jeffrey to 2020. Carol, I saw you, of course, on Thursday after your elongated weekend. You're back. And Jeffrey, after your incredibly elongated holiday. Yeah, I think I had a fortnight off. A bit longer than that, my old cockle. uh, A bit longer than that. Although, uh, coming back to some of your points, it does feel like we've stumbled blinking into the light of 2020 with very little change, really, from where we were last year. But I know you've got to read before we get into the market chat, Karen. Yes, I'll just so read I'll on and set the scene for what's happening now as NATO ambassadors will hold an urgent meeting today in Brussels to discuss the ongoing developments in the Middle East. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy has been deployed to the Persian Gulf with orders to protect any British ships in the region. But coming back to the ramifications for markets, as been, we've been weighing up geopolitical risk, clearly there is some geopolitical risk on the table. If you look at that escalation in the gold price to seven-year highs, 
But elsewhere, you've had the Fed debating a change to monetary policy in San Diego. They've been doing some soul searching about the ramifications of this extraordinary easing. As you've seen uh, many policymakers deal with throughout 2019, low inflation and low unemployment rates. But what happens if we change one of those numbers where we actually have some form of inflation with the very low unemployment rate? So do we start to get a different 2020 where central banks don't have the room to manoeuvre that they did in 2019? Uh, I would just give my tuppence worth before you jump in, Steve. Uh, I think FOMO is still one of the biggest uh, features of this market at the moment. When you look at how well some people did in uh, 2019, I think there are a lot of people who didn't do very well at all who came through the end of the year thinking there's going to be a sell-off, there's going to be a sell-off, didn't come, we're late cycle, we're late cycle, there's going to be a sell-off, didn't come, who are now looking at 2020 and thinking, is there an opportunity to catch up here? You talked a lot about the Fed. I think there's a big view that the central banks are still in the game and they're going to support you going into this year. The data suggests that inflation isn't going to be an issue. What have we got? We've got weak Japanese data this morning, weak Chinese data. We had a bit bit of weak US data as we came out of 2019, which is going to keep the central banks in the game. And at this point, you're trying to figure out what Iran means you know that oil and oil-related inflation has had a role in plenty of recessions in the last 40 or 50 years or so. But this time round, does it look like that's where we're going? Hard to make that big call, I think. Just very briefly, um, on the latter point you made on Iran, every rational player in the region, um, economically, and politically I think is a completely different sphere, but economically does not want to see a conflict between uh, US and its allies and Iran and its allies in the region as well. Everyone knows it, whether you're Israel, whether you're Saudi Arabia, whether you're Tehran, uh, whether you're Baghdad or whether you're Washington, knows that this is a, a terrible scenario for the world economy because what it can do to energy prices potentially uh, and where it could send an economy, which let's face it, is still relying on vast amounts of largesse from central banks as well. So it's interesting if the politics overtakes the economic rationale, which it hasn't to date and hasn't for, let's face it, decades as well. Uh, the other point is um, as Christmas, you know, you, tr- you, you take the tree down, you've got the needles everywhere in the carpet and you're pushing so hard on your it. vacuum cleaner as well. And you can hear that sucking noise when you're just really working hard on a bit. And, you, you know, and, that, and that sucking noise is actually the last few investors, the holdouts, basically the last few pine needles. It's being stuck in the carpet. It's sucking them in. Uh, and the question is, is it sucking them in for a fool's rally? Is it the retail investor at the top? Is it the holdouts you mentioned who said, this is rubbish? We think that it's been about buybacks. We think it's been about central banks. And we're not going to buy into it because it's not about corporate and economic rationale. Because as you say, we think it's late cycle. Well, when they've got those final few pine needles up and, and, and your vacuum cleaner is exploding under the mess, is that is that the moment when the market has its sell-off? You've got a few more people to suck in there. Glad you got the final pine needles. Mine are still lying all over the, the house. Well, a lovely seasonal reference. Shoes. Well, I thought so. <laughs> the question I have is around some of these calls now in the market because we've already we've spoken to a number of commentators and they're calling UK markets, saying that the UK assets here are undervalued. So it's that game of raking around for the certain asset classes were not picked up in 2019 to the full extent. So I question how much of that will come to pass. The US market, we've had questions around the, the extent of buybacks already, with people saying, well, it's not going to be a, such a stellar year because buybacks are not going to be happening at the same pace. Can we question that narrative too? Because the, the other trade seems to be the EM trade. If we have a, a volatile year because of geopolitics, will the emerging markets 
hold up or will this be a revision back to US markets because they seem safer your relative to emerging markets? It's fascinating. And that's not your buyback argument, by the way. It is, it is a very well-trod path of exactly. people who are telling us. But, but let's say there was a, and again, I haven't got these exact numbers here. Let's say there were a trillion dollars worth of buybacks last year. I mean, it was massive figures anyway. Uh, and then this year, it's only going to be 750. Well, for a start, you've got a smaller equity market anyway, because the IPO market's not as strong as it would have been as well. And, and there's a de-equitization going on because of the whole process of buyback anyway. So even though you're absolutely right, there may be less buybacks, there's still going to be 750 billion or 800 billion as well. So you're still going to see a vast amount of buyback into a very small pool of equity, potentially. I still see it as major positive force, even though absolutely there'll be less of it. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us here on the programme. Ghosn on the run. Fresh details emerge over Carlos Ghosn's dramatic escape from Japan that has turned the auto tycoon into an international fugitive. We'll have more on that story in a moment. And just a reminder, if you can't get enough of Sporkbox in 2020, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. The Japanese government has vowed to tighten immigration rules after the escape of former Nissan boss Carlos Ghosn from house arrest in Tokyo. The statement marks the country's first official response to Ghosn's flight from the country last week. The auto executive faces trial in Japan over financial misconduct allegations. He has denied wrongdoing. Look, look this is the biggest stable door of all time in Japan, isn't it? Someone's now got to shut it. The horse is gone. What are they on about? The horse has gone. Tightening immigration rules. I mean, they've, they've blown it. I'm sorry, Japan. I've, you know, Many, many great things about your country, but you've blown it. Look, I don't think Japan has uh, very loose immigration rules to start no. off with. Let's face it. This is a country that has one of the most homogenous populations in the I world because they have restricted the flow of uh, migrants into the country. Um, I don't suppose there is a big problem with the immigration system in it's Japan. A ridiculous set of state. dare I say it. There you go. Tokyo prosecutors have condemned the escape. No, really? Yes, they have. Have condemned the escape, branding it, quote, illegal by unjust methods. Again, really? Amazing. Breaking news. Saying his actions ignore Japanese laws and are being investigated. Uh, Gona has repeatedly criticised the country's justice system, calling it rigged. Uh, look, I don't know if it's rigged or not. How, how many, uh, what's the prosecution rate? I, I'm told it's 99% plus. Just leave that with you. Uh, new details from around the world have emerged about Gone's dramatic escape. The New York Times reports that Gone was accompanied on his flight out of Japan by an American security consultant. Elsewhere, a Turkish charter jet company said its planes were illegally used to transport Gone out of the country. He's alleged to have flown to Istanbul before arriving in Lebanon. 
Dozens of Hong Kong demonstrators were arrested over the weekend after hundreds marched on the border town of Shengshui to protest against China's so-called parallel traders. The practice sees traders buy duty-free goods in Hong Kong to sell at a markup on the mainland, something locals complain drives up prices. Sunday's march comes after hundreds of thousands took part in anti-government marches on New Year's Day. China has replaced its top official in Hong Kong following more than six months of anti-government protests. Uh, Liu Huining replaces Wang Jimin as the head of the Hong Kong Liaison Office, Beijing's representative office in the region. Law had previously served as the top official in China's coal-rich Shaanxi province, where he was known for enforcing Communist Party discipline. However, he has never held a Hong Kong-related post. The liaison office has been accused by Beijing of misjudging the seriousness of the Hong Kong demonstrations early on. China's services sector expanded at a slower pace in December, with the occasion services PMI coming in at 52.5. Meanwhile, Chinese business confidence fell to its second lowest level on record, according to a survey of services firms. The subdued reading indicates Chinese businesses remain wary despite a raft of stimulus measures and the prospect of a phase one trade deal with the United States. The latest cut to Chinese banks' reserve requirement ratio comes into effect today. The People's Bank of China aims to inject some 800 billion yuan into the market following its decision last week to cut the triple R rate by 50 basis points. James Athey joins us. He is a senior investment manager at Aberdeen Standard Investments. James, I wonder whether the Chinese central bank is the right place to start out to 2020 talking. We've had some moves, but will they be the dominant force in markets in 2020 when we've already got the Fed debating monetary policy? Yeah, exactly. Sure. It's, it's probably an easier place to start with the uh, the PBOC than with, with Japanese immigration and uh, and how on earth Carl got, Carlos Ghosn got out of there. Um, I mean, we've seen that essentially when you look at the triple R, it's been in steady decline for year after year after year after year. And yet we've seen the rate of growth declining year after year after year after year. So I don't I don't think there's anything particularly new in what we're seeing or what we should expect from the PBOC. Um, actually, they've stated that their goal really is overtly now to just steady and slow and manage the pace of decline, not to try and stimulate in the ways that we saw in 2012, 13 and 2015, 16. And that's why I believe that this is not the same type of mini cycle that we've seen previously where recession, um, sorry, manufacturing activity globally sort of headed towards recession and then was boosted higher by Chinese policy. This is something vastly different and it's why I'm much more cautious. Which I think is a very interesting point because there is, uh, I was reading the slew of uh, forecasts for 2020 and there are quite a lot of people who are putting money into a basket that says Chinese markets rebound. This could be uh, the Chinese year. What you're saying suggests that this is not about stimulus for the economy. It's about managing liquidity for corporates, perhaps, who are struggling at this point for various reasons. So if that's the case, is that um, taking too big a risk on at this point to suggest that you pile into China on a 52-week view thinking that these markets come back strongly? Yes, I think so. And, and again, even if even if you're right in how you've described Chinese policy, actually what we're seeing is that it's, it's much less broad. It's much less throwing stimulus at the entire piece and hoping that the rising tide ri- rises all boats. 
the, the number of defaults that we've seen onshore in Chinese local sort of uh, bond issues has gone up dramatically in, in the last couple of years. And actually, we've seen some pretty large state-owned enterprises um, going that way as well. And that's telling you that, again, China is becoming much more targeted about stimulus. Stimulus is not intended to just be throw as much money into, into the uh, financial system and into the economy as just, possible. Just to tie in the oil story here, we know China is a significant importer of energy. What are the consequences early on of this spike we're seeing in the headline crude price, do you think, for NIMS, um, uh, sorry, margins in a lot of Chinese corporates that rely on this uh, Western oil or uh, Middle Eastern oil? It's pretty small so far. I mean, what we're seeing, we're talking about four, five, six percent rise in the oil price. I don't think immediately that's in, in, um, incredibly dramatic. Actually, we'd seen a bit of a strengthening of the yuan, which does work to offset some of that anyway. The point is, again, the extent to which that this goes, this lasts for a period of time, because that will pressure margins. We've seen China's profitability across corporates has been, again, steadily declining for quite a while. 2019 was an incredibly bad year. We saw some bad profit numbers down there. This won't help. In the world of ultra cynicism, I'm going to say what I'm about to say as well. This is potentially very good news for one part of the broader energy industry, and this is shale. Shale's been apps, and you, everyone who's in the US, you know this more than I do. People haven't been investing. People haven't been putting new plants in. People have been worried about their margins when we're lower down. This could be the absolute boost that Shell needs to see at a reinvestment phase that just hasn't happened in 2019. Mm. Just chuck that one out there as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.